Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, as you know, we are in a sermon series reading through the Psalms of Ascents, which are the 15 songs the Israelites would sing as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for the three pilgrim free- feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. Today, as we've already sung, we're going to be reading Psalm 127. And this psalm is attributed to King Solomon. In addition to being a song of ascent, it is also a wisdom song, meant to teach us how to live the kind of life for which God made us. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 127. It's also printed in your order of worship. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that by your spirit, you would teach us to live, to walk, and to work alongside you in your work of restoring the world. Also, Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning to rest from our work. Through Psalm 127, would you, would you lead us to Jesus? Would you lead us to cling more tightly to him and to trust him more, and that by your word, you would change us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, a couple of years ago, my wife Rachel and I uh, rented out the first floor apartment in our two-flat for the first time. And on move-in day, Our renter, I'll call him Steve, uh, was running late, so he called to ask if I'd be willing to let the movers in when they arrived. And as I hung up the phone, lo and behold, a moving truck had just pulled up in front of our house. So I sprint down the stairs and said, hey, are you guys here for Steve? And the head guy looked at his clipboard and was like, yeah, 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 we're here for Steve. So I told him to follow me into the alley. I jogged ahead and showed him exactly where to park, and they got right to work unloading the, uh, the moving truck. And about halfway through, the head guy remarks to me, hmm, I thought this was supposed to be a third floor apartment. He checks the clipboard again and says, this is Steve Bakerson, right? No, no, you have the wrong last name. So these movers had to move everything that they had moved into the apartment out onto the truck so that they could head one block over to another Steve's apartment. And of course, these guys were super angry. They had just expended a bunch of energy and ended up right back where they started with nothing to show for it. I mean, seriously, what are the chances that another Steve was moving into the same neighborhood on the same day, at the same time. 
Solomon in Psalm 127 makes the case that this kind of meaningless toil is actually our default mode after the fall. And it is the root of much of our anxiety, frustration, and despair. However, he also paints a picture of a different way to live and to work, full of hope, rest, and fruitfulness. So as we look at Psalm 127 together, I want us to see three truths. The first is that we are a people prone to anxious toil. Second, God is the builder and the giver. And third, love is what lasts. So firstly, we are people prone to anxious toil. Now, If we look back to Genesis at the very opening chapters, we see that work was an important part of the good life that God meant for humanity. Adam and Eve were to name and to tend and to bring order and growth to God's good creation. There was no sense of toil in their work. Toil is a weariness, a sense of futile struggle or resistance to our efforts. Toil had no place in Eden. Now, when I imagine what work was like before the fall, I imagine that it would have had the same flavor that a really complicated Lego building set has for my kids. For my oldest in particular, nothing would make him happier than building a 4,000-piece Lego set that required 12 hours to put together. And that's because Lego is amazing. It's challenging, invigorating, and purposeful. There is a, a deep sense of order, but also delightful creativity and discovery. Church, that is how we were meant to experience work. But after the fall, the curse resulted in work becoming toilsome. Metaphorically and literally, thorns and thistles spring up and get in the way of the fruit that we hope to produce. So now, though we may have moments where we feel the Lego-like joy, the default often feels more like putting together Ikea furniture. Our efforts to work and build a life may feel like driving out to Schaumburg, hauling a heavy box out to your car, getting it home and finding that the instructions don't make sense. You're missing five pegs and two screws, and the holes are out of alignment. So what do you do? You got to haul that thing back to Schaumburg, back to Ikea, uh, Ikea, exchange it, and maybe the new one might not be right either. That is toil. That feeling that you can make the best of plans, you can get up early and go to bed late, you can spend your best energy and yet constantly have to be on guard, let something derail your whole endeavor. And so the curse of toil is why some of us come home from work, but we can't turn work off. It's constantly operating in the background, or why we might have trouble remembering the last time we really enjoyed a meal or felt rested. Because our life 
is such a rush to put out the next fire. King Solomon never experienced the specific toil of Ikea furniture, but the experience of toil has not changed since the fall. So here is what he writes. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. You know that feeling when a good friend who loves you tells you that you have kale in your teeth or barbecue sauce in your shirt? That feeling is a weird mixture of alarm and relief. But the alarm mostly comes from the realization that we would have been walking around all day like that if this kind person hadn't cared enough to tell us. Solomon is being kind in his observation of what life is like for many of us. He is pointing out that we are prone to be mired in relentless, compulsive work habits that stem from our deep down belief that we can and we must rearrange the universe on our own effort. And so the initial invitation of Psalm 127 is that we look in the mirror and be honest about our own reflection. Do we find ourselves driven by anxiety and fear over what the future holds, worrying about whether we will have enough? Do we recognize ourselves in Solomon's picture of a person who holds themselves to inhumane standards, denying themselves healthy meals and rest because they feel like the final outcome of their work and their lives rests wholly on their shoulders? If this is where we find ourselves, Psalm 127 offers us a different way to live. And that leads us to the second truth this morning. God is the builder and the giver. The Bible begins with an announcement. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God worked. The premise of this psalm is that before we work, God works. Unless God builds the house, unless God watches over the city, the condition, unless God, presupposes that God builds, God guards, He gives. In other words, the work of God did not stop on the seventh day of creation when God rested from all of His work. God God continues to work in every part of our lives and our world. As Psalm 90 so beautifully puts it, if anything that we do is going to last, it will be because God establishes the work of our hands. If you're a person of faith, it's not hard to intellectually assent to this truth that God's constant work on our behalf is what holds the world together and what determines whether our work has ultimate meaning and value. But church, 
you and I know it is much harder to live each day as if God is in control of the ultimate outcome. Rachel and I were on vacation in Michigan this summer for our anniversary. And even though it was just the two of us and we had nothing to do besides choosing between the pool or the lake, I felt like my adrenaline was pumping. I couldn't sit still and I couldn't be present in the moment. So one morning we were sitting in comfy chairs with a good book overlooking Lake Michigan. And I kindly asked myself, why aren't you able to relax and enjoy this time away? And I felt like the answer came in a mental picture of myself as a stick figure holding up the world. You see, we had stepped away from a lot of balls in the air, and deep down, I I believed that if I stopped holding them up, there would be nothing to stop them from dropping, even though I made good preparation to be away. Even though my body was on a break, on vacation, my mind continued to toil. It wouldn't stop. And as I started praying, this picture in my mind shifted. And I remembered God's words to Job. Where were you, David, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? See, when the curtain is pulled back on our lives, it is not us who is capable of pulling the strings and directing the show. We sure can act like it, but it's going to be as disappointing as it was to Dorothy who discovered that a normal little man behind the curtain was the Wizard of Oz. See, the good news is that behind the curtain of eternity is the mighty one who created all things. And he holds the world and our individual circumstances on his shoulders. And church, he will accomplish his purpose with or without us, and yet because he loves us, he invites us to participate in his work. And so after we have done our best work for the day, we can lay down our work and rest. Solomon writes, he gives to his beloved sleep. We can allow ourselves to rest because it is God who carries the ultimate outcome and that he loves us. The one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is always building, always watching protecting, making things grow, establishing the work of our hands. You and I can rest and we can sleep because he is always working for our good and our flourishing. And so finally, the last truth I want us to notice in Psalm 127 is this. Love is what lasts. 
In verse 3, this psalm takes what seems to be an unexpected turn and starts talking about children. He writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the, ro- the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In the Old Testament, children were your, your security net. They were your work crew, your retirement savings. Children were how your life continued to matter after you were gone and your name was established. This is in part why Sarah and Abraham and Hannah and others in the Old Testament long so deeply for children. Now the connection between the first half of the psalm and this second part at first seems pretty obscure, but I think Eugene Peterson nails it as he often does. He writes, what do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we call work. We did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. Solomon offers us this picture of a parent's relationship with their children as an example of the intersection between our work and God's gifting. We did not make our children in an ultimate sense. And we do not get to take credit for the the breath they, they draw and the beating of their hearts. And yet, we are gifted with the immense privilege of nurturing and guiding them. And if we are faithful, this relationship with these little people may, by the grace of God, one day become a relationship of mutual love and respect between adults. But as I look out, lots of us here don't have children. Some of you, like the patriarchs, pray for children that have not yet been given. And some of you know or suspect that raising children is not God's plan for you. But if that is the case, this portion of Psalm 127 remains utterly relevant. Because when we consider these verses through the lens of the work of Jesus, we see an enlarged tapestry. Psalm 127 says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. And yet, Jesus himself didn't procreate children. He went about enlarging his family in another way. He made you and I sons and daughters because of his work of love. And that means that we are all brothers and sisters. And some of us are called to be mothers and fathers in the faith. What we see in this second half is that ultimately the whole of Psalm 127 is about work. But not just about the jobs that we get paid for or the children that we raise. It's really about the work of love in the context of relationships 
the work of building the life for which God made us. We are invited to ask ourselves, what am I building in this world? In five years, in 10 years, in 25 years, what do I hope to be able to see standing? Because at the final trumpet, the question asked will not be what have we done or how have we believed but how have we loved? How have we loved those we are in relationship with? And so do the decisions that we are making in taking a new job or working more or fewer hours or moving to a new location or committing to activities or service projects, do they serve the work of love? You know, as I thought about this passage this week, my Italian barber came to mind. I love and respect my barber. He treats every customer that walks through his door like family. And so people have said to him over the years, why don't you expand to another shop in another part of the city? This business is great. It's amazing that you could be hugely successful. And I've heard him answer by saying, sure, I'd make a ton more money, but it would mean less time with my family, and it would, it would be harder to care well for my employees and my customers. Why would I do that? So I can stay up at night working and worrying? According to my barber, success in the eyes of the world would compromise his ability to love and to rest. And I think this is a God-given perspective. This is life through the lens of Psalm 127. But here's the reality. When we, like him, make choices in line with love, it may take a long time before we see the fruit. Sometimes the work of love might feel very much like the work of those poor movers who are just trying to deliver my tenant's furniture. We may feel like we're expending a ton of energy and seeing no return. But Psalm 127 assures us that love is the one thing, church, it is the only thing that will last. It is the only thing that will matter. And it is the work that God guarantees and will establish. You can take it to the bank. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom of Psalm 127 for our lives. Grant us the courage to peer behind the curtain to see you, the mighty one who created all things and holds the world and our lives on your shoulders. 
Teach us to work hard unto you and to learn to rest from our work, knowing that you neither slumber nor sleep. Give us courage to know your love for us and do the work of love for all of our lives, for your glory and for your name, knowing that it is your job to establish the work of our hands. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.